This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so tempted to, to try to build our lives on, on other things besides Christ. There are so many distractions in our, our culture. Such a massive uh, temptation to find God substitutes, uh, whether that's money or possessions or things. But Lord, nothing can satisfy the deepest needs in our lives, but Christ. We, we come to know you through your son, and only through your son. And so Lord, as we, we talk about incredibly weighty things today, this is a heavy, heavy text. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that you would speak. There's a, there's a reason why you put difficult text in your word. It's because we need them. We need to hear what's in them. We need to learn. And so, Lord, would you, you speak to us about powerful things in life and in eternity today. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Tony Evans is a pastor in uh, Dallas, and uh, he tells about... <clears throat> During his seminary years, and you know, he and his wife, newlyweds, and you know, they didn't have, they didn't have a lot of money or anything, and uh, he's in, in school preparing to be a, a, a pastor, but they had some, some friends who were, were wealthy, and sometimes those friends would ask them to, to house sit for them. And Tony said, this was the greatest gig ever for seminary students. I mean, you know, we got to get out of our cramped campus apartment for a weekend or even a week, and we got to live large and get paid to do it. And he said, you know, I would get comfortable in there. I would drive up in the driveway and think, think of it kind of as my house for the week. I'd, I'd settle into the living room and there's a big old, you know, uh, widescreen. And, and I'd start getting too comfortable and my wife would not let me touch a thing. And she would remind me, this, this is not ours. You be careful. There's nothing that is going to be out of place here. You see, she understood the mindset of looking after the property and the affairs of another. She understood what the Bible calls stewardship. And Jesus says that we need to understand stewardship or we can waste our lives and our eternity. Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 and we're talking this morning about echoes in eternity. Echoes in eternity. Luke chapter 16. So there are two parables here. In this series, I'm covering the major parts of Luke that are unique to the gospel of Luke. And so when you're preaching a series like this, um, one of the good things about that is that you know, you can't avoid difficult text. 
<laughs> and when I got to chapter 16, and I saw, well, here's what's coming next. Money and hell. <laughs> Okie dokie, here we go. Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at, um, we're going to look at two parables here. We're going to look, first of all, at verses 1 through 14, um, and then we're going to look at, uh, at, at verses 19 through 31, the parable of the dishonest manager and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So let's look, first of all, beginning with chapter 16 and verse 1. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. Now, Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And let's skip to verse 19. Second parable. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received good things just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, 
then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Probably the first real heavy action movie that I let my son Caleb watch with me when he was a little boy was the film Gladiator. (laughs) And uh, there's a powerful opening scene. If you've seen gladiator and you know Caleb was a little boy we'd be watching this opening scene he'd go get his his play sword you know and maybe his his armor that he wore at Halloween or something like that and he would get he would get hyped up for this opening scene of gladiator because you've got these two armies that are squared off and and preparing for battle and the Roman general Maximus played by Russell Crowe rides out to address his men just before they go into battle. And there's a famous line where General Maximus says to his men, brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Jesus says that's true of you and me too. What we do in life echoes in eternity, and one of the things that God has given us to do in this life is to manage or steward the time and treasure and talents that God has entrusted to us. How do we do that wisely? Let's talk about that. What do we see here about being God's stewards? I want us to look at three things. First of all, God's stewards must be shrewd. So let's look at this parable, the parable of the the dishonest manager. Pick it up here in verse one. Now he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So in biblical times, It was common on a a large, wealthy estate like this for the owner to kind of have a chief executive, you know, who would basically manage all the affairs of his estate. If you remember, if you were here in our series on Joseph uh, last year, Joseph filled this role for the Egyptian official, official Potiphar. And Joseph was an amazing steward. He was an incredible uh, manager of Potiphar's possessions. Well, you know, this guy is the opposite. He's an awful steward. And it says here that he was, he was squandering his, his master's possessions. Now, that word we saw in chapter 15 when we were talking about the parable of the prodigal son. It's the same word in Greek, diaskorpizo. And it says that the younger son was squandering the, 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 his inheritance. Now, this guy is, is squandering uh, the, the estate of his, of, his, of his master. 
And the word it, the, the squander just means it, it refers to like uh, uh, the process of winnowing. You know, in ancient times, they would, they would throw the grain up in the air and the grain would fall to the ground and the chaff would just be blown away. And basically what it's saying here is that this, this guy, this manager is just systematically throwing away his, 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 the owner's estate. So word gets to the owner about what's going on. And so he calls him in. And it says in verse 2, so he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Well, at this point, you know, this guy, this steward is freaking out because up until this point, he's had it made. He says in in verse 3, the manager says to himself, what will I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. (laughs) I mean, this guy has lived a soft life, you know, and now he's facing the future of, you know, being on the street or in the ditch. But then a devious thought comes into his mind. Verse 4. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. He's like, there's something that I can do to ingratiate myself with people that will ensure a better future for myself. Verses five through seven. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil. He said, take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. You see, by lightening the, the debts of his master's debtors, he's putting them in his debt. They're gonna owe him favors. Now, of course, <laughs> this is totally unethical. But what does he care? He has no scruples. What he does have is a certain shrewdness, a street savvy. Now, at this point, the parable kind of takes an unexpected turn because we think that the, you know, the owner is going to hear about this. He's going to have this guy strung up. But instead, in verse 8, he commends him. Verse 8, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. (laughs) The master is like, hey, you are a slime ball. (laughs) There's no doubt about that. But you're not stupid. Now, Jesus takes this wild story and he turns it and he looks at his disciples and he says this in verse nine, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. What in the world is Jesus saying here? (laughs) 
Well, obviously, he's not saying that this guy is any kind of a role model. You know, he's a repugnant figure. But what Jesus is saying is this. Whereas this guy used his shrewdness to do something bad, you, as my followers, are to be shrewd and wise in using the resources that God has given you to do good, to leverage them for good, for eternal good. Now, a key word here in verse 9 is the word when, okay? Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, you say, well, how do you know it's going to fail? Because your perishable body is going to fail. <laughs> because we live in these perishable bodies that are going to fail. And we can't take anything with us. I was growing up, we used to play Monopoly sometimes, and uh, you know, we'd get out the Monopoly board and put it on the coffee table in the, the den. And, and uh, you know, I was a 10-year-old financial wizard with Monopoly, and man, I'd be like, I'd, I'd be building my empire and acquiring properties here and there, you know, and I'd, I'd be just amassing this, this, this fortune, this ever-expanding empire. And then my mom would say, time for bed. <laughs> And all the stuff, all of my assets <laughs> would go back in the box. And the box would close and mom would put it back on the shelf. You know, one day, the boxes of our earthly lives is going to close on us. A, a lid is going to close, quite literally, on our lives. They say, well, maybe not. Christ could come before I die. That's true. But in either case, you're going to be facing eternity. Eternity. We're all going to be facing eternity one day. And when you're facing eternity, it's going to be good if you've got friends in high places. Friends like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the shrewd move is not just to think about planning for the next 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years. Uh, you should do that. That's wise. What about the next 40 trillion years? This life is like a moment in time. We're all going to be facing eternity. The shrewd move is to think about eternity when you're managing what God has given you to manage. Now, does that mean that you can buy your way into heaven? Oh no, God is not bought. <laughs> he doesn't need a thing that we've got. And furthermore, the Bible tells us that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. But then, it says in verse 10, 
It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, as new creations in Christ who have been saved by God's grace, he's created us in Christ for good works. And as James tells us in James 2, over and over again, faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. There's no reality to it. And so our, our works demonstrate the reality of our faith. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 6, in verses 19 through 21, says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And then he says this, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The way that we manage money and possessions, it says something about our heart. It tells us what we love. There's that famous old song, Who Do You Love? <laughs> Who do you love? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so it's like a monitor, a monitor for what we really love. If you really love God, that's gonna be reflected, you know, in the way that you handle the earthly treasure that he has given to you. Thabidiyanya Wile says this, stewardship is worship. We declare who our God is every time we make a money decision. Either our money is Lord or Christ is Lord. The second thing that we see here is that God's stewards must be faithful. So Jesus continues his teaching in verses 10 through 13. And he says here, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Wow. Now Jesus, he knows the human heart <laughs> like nobody else. And he knows that there are two temptations that we face when it comes to money and possessions. The first one is this, to think of ourselves as owners, not managers. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 12. He says, if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, God owns it all. You are just managing his money, his possessions, his assets. It's all his. 
You say, but it's mine. I worked really hard for it. Time out. (laughs) Who gave you breath (laughs) to wake up this morning? Who gave you life? Why do you even exist? Acts 17 and verse 25 says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Who who gave you the the brain and the ability to, to work and to even make money? Deuteronomy 8 and verse 18 says, but remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. And for that matter, why are, we're living in America. <laughs> you know, why, are we, why are we here? You know, most of us in this room were born here. I've been able to go to several countries where people were working really, really hard. But you know what? They're working hard just to survive. They don't have the opportunities that we have here. And in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, Jesus says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. But see, we, we so easily, gosh, it's, it's we, we just default to this so easily in our, in our sin nature. I mean, we all do it. You know, we, 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 have, to, we have to shift paradigms, you know, and, and just understand and begin to, to think like, you know, managers, like stewards and not owners. We have to unlearn, you know, thinking of ourselves as, as owners. I, I wish I could be more like John Wesley. <laughs> There's a famous story about John Wesley uh, and, uh, and, and his, his house burned down and someone came and informed him, hey, listen, we hate to tell you this, but, you know, your house just burned to the ground. And Wesley said, you know, that's impossible. And they're like, no, really? It actually happened. Wesley's like, that's impossible. He said, I don't really own that house. <laughs> God gave it to me to, to, to live in. And if he, didn't, if, he, if he chose not to put the fire out, then that's his problem he'll give me somewhere else to live. It'll be fine. <laughs> to be that free, right? <laughs> I get upset when, when Jeter digs holes in my yard. <laughs> and the girls have to bring me back down to reality, you know, that Jeter is the master of both the yard and our house. It's really the Lord's, right? It's all his, right? The, the property, <laughs> the people, the puppy, the financial portfolio, it's all his, all his. But we have to learn to think like that because we tend to do the opposite. Second temptation that we face is to love money instead of using it for God's glory. Let's look at verse 13 again. It says, no servant can serve two masters since either, either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other You cannot serve both God and money. Now notice here, he does not say you should not serve God and money. No, you cannot. This is impossible. 
But again, you know, Jesus knows the temptations of our hearts. And this is why there's so many warnings in the Bible about the danger of loving money. 1 Timothy 6 is one of the, one of the best ones. 1 Timothy 6 and verses 6 through 10 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And he says in verses 17 through 19, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves, there it is again, as a good foundation for the coming age. This life ends so that they may take hold of what is truly life. When you, when you look here at kind of the, the totality of what the Lord Jesus is saying uh, here in, in verses 10 through, through 13, you know, notice the word faithful just coming out again and again. Whoever, whoever's faithful, verse 10, and very little is also faithful in and, and much. Verse 11, if you've not been faithful with worldly wealth. Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else. But what does faithfulness look like in real life? Like this can't be theory. This has got to be brought down to like real life. This is real life. Again, Thabiti Anyawile uh, says this, our Lord's teaching about stewardship brings our faith down to real life. The rubber of discipleship meets the road of practical decisions about money and possessions. Practical decisions. We need a plan for faithfulness. We need a practical plan for it. It's like anything else. I mean, you say, I want to I grow as a student of the Bible. I want to learn, I want to I be more steeped in God's word. What's your plan? What's your, what's your reading plan? What's your plan of attack that you're going to execute, you know, in reading the Bible? You know, I want, I want my prayer life to be better. Okay, what's your, what's your plan, you know, to be more faithful in your, your prayer life. You're kind of, you're blocking out time to be with God. What, you know, what's, your, what's the practical plan? You know, and so when it comes to faithfulness and stewardship, we need a concrete plan. And I'm so thankful to uh, my parents for this. Melissa's parents also taught her the same. And so we get, when we got married, um, this was what we decided on, you know, before we ever got married. And so, you know, with my parents, um, they came to Christ as a young couple uh, through the outreach of this church. Um, and Jesus changed their lives. You know, 
But as, as new Christians, um, you know, he had done so many beautiful things in their lives and, you know, and just changed their lives, their marriage in so many ways. I mean, they were blown away just by God's goodness to them. But, you know, they, times were really hard for them at that point financially, you know, and so they came to church and, you know, they began to hear people talk about, you know, they, obviously giving was a part of that and everything and, and you know, um, uh, they were people, were, they were passing the plate. We haven't done that since COVID, but, you know, they were passing the offering plate and things like that, you know, and they heard people talk about tithing, you know, giving a tenth of your income and stuff. And so they were like, okay, you know, we're barely making the ends meet not doing that, <laughs> not giving anything. You know, like, how, how, can that, how can that work? You know, but they were so blown away by what, what Jesus had done in their lives that they just said, you know, we're going to trust God in this. And we're, gonna, we're just going to do this. And we're going to trust God to provide. And, they, and he did. And they just saw God's faithfulness. They just saw God just coming through for them. You know, in all kinds. I mean, God's got like a million creative ways, you know, of, of, of coming, coming through and showing his faithfulness in our lives. And my parents discovered that, you know, and they discovered, you know what, hey, we can, we can tithe. Um, and, and we're seeing God come through for us. And so, you know, they started to give, you know, offerings uh, beyond the tithe. And they, they saw it to missions and things. And they just saw, you know, wow, God is... God is coming through for us. So, you know, that was, that was taught to me growing up by my godly parents. And Melissa's parents were, were teaching her the, the same thing. And so that's kind of the, the plan that we adopted, you know, as a, as a couple. You know, we, we said that you know, we're going we're gonna to give a tithe, a tenth of our income to the general fund of whatever church, whatever local church that we're a part of. Um, and, and, and then there would be you know, special offerings and things like that that were you know, be beyond the tie. But that's, that was our plan. And by God's grace for now for, you know, for 31 years, that's not been something that we've deviated from through all the highs and lows in life and through some really interesting economic times in our country and through uh, three kids in, in, in college. Now, does that say anything about our goodness? Absolutely not. That says a lot about the goodness of God. It's God's faithfulness. We believe that God is faithful and we do not subscribe to the theory that we are going to have more by giving God less. God's math doesn't work like that. He says in 2 Corinthians 9 and verses 6 through 8, the point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. I want to tell you something. God is faithful. God is faithful. Let him show you his faithfulness. 
The third thing that we see here is that God's stewards will be rewarded. God's stewards will be rewarded. So before we get to the parable, which begins in verse 19, we need to look at verse 14, because it says the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. Now, you know, these, these guys, they're religious leaders, but it says they're, they're lovers of money. That was their actual love, not God. Um, and, but furthermore, <laughs> these guys were scoffing because they viewed their earthly wealth as a sign of God's favor, that they were, you know, that they were God's favorites. We're God's favorites. You know, our money confirms even more that we've got a ticket to heaven. They needed to be shaken up, like they needed to be shaken. And Jesus has just a parable. <laughs> he has just the parable to shake them up. And us, let's pick it up in verse 19. It says, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. I mean, this guy is Mr. Self-indulgence. I mean, he's basically bowing down in front of a full-length mirror every day and worshiping himself every day. But he's also doing something else every day. He's passing by an absolutely pitiful figure that's right at his gate. Verses 20 and 21. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. Now Jesus just masterfully paints the contrast here, doesn't he? You know, the, this, the first guy is covered in the finest linen. The second guy is covered in festering sores. But these two guys have one thing in common. They both die. Verse 22. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. This is the moment Lazarus drew his last breath on earth. His next breath was in heaven. And the angels came and, and carried him to, to, to Abraham's side. You know, so one of the wonderful things about heaven is going to be to get to know the saints of the Old and New Testaments, right? And people that we only knew by faith here on earth and read about in scripture, we're gonna get to know them. And we're gonna get to be with saved loved ones. And yes, there's gonna be recognition. We, we see that here. How wonderful that's gonna be. And most of all, to, to be with, with, with Christ. And then, it's, then Jesus says at the end of verse 22, he says that the rich man also uh, died and was buried. And I'm sure it was quite the burial. <laughs> quite the burial. Elaborate. His body was prepared. 
It looked great. You know, people can do wonders today, you know, with, with people, with bodies after death. And, you know, often people see, see, uh, see someone there and lying there in the casket and say, oh, they, they look so peaceful. Friend, I want to tell you, you will not rest in peace unless you know the Prince of Peace. And this man does not know him. He does not know him. Verse 23. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Now Hades is the, it's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Sheol. It's the word in the, in the Greek Old, Old Testament. Um, it translates the word uh, Sheol. In the New Testament, it's used synonymously with hell. It's become fashionable these days, even among evangelicals, to water down the doctrine of hell, to get squishy on hell. But you know what? Jesus knows a whole lot more about heaven and hell than you and me. How arrogant it would be of us to think that we know more about hell than Jesus. And Jesus talked about hell a lot. And he did it out of love. He did it because he loved people and he wanted to warn them of its reality. And friends, we need to feel the weight of this. Feel the weight the weight of the reality of eternal judgment. And there's a couple of questions here. First of all, do you know Christ? He lived the perfect life that sinners like us could never live. And then on the cross, he died the death we should have died. Jesus on the cross allowed darkness and hell to converge on him so that we don't have to go there if we'll repent and believe in him. He rose from the dead that we can have life. Life. Choose life. Turn to Christ. Trust him. And if you are in Christ, are you doing all that you can to take as many people with you as you can to heaven? Through your witnessing, through your giving, you can reach people thousands of miles away that you'd never be able to talk to in this life. Are you doing everything that you can to bring as many people as you can with you to heaven? I love what Spurgeon said about this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Who's your one? Who are the people in your life that need to know about the Savior? Do you really love them enough to point the way to Jesus? 
Verse 24. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Now, some commentators point out here that it seems like this guy, is, this guy is still thinking of Lazarus as a slave. You know, send Lazarus, send Lazarus here. But hell is no place for Lazarus. It's no place for him. And by the way, he was in heaven not because he was poor in possessions, but because he was rich in love for God. No, hell is no place for him. He is God's child. And besides, there's another reason why he can't cross that chasm. And Jesus tells us about it in verses 25 and 26. Son, Abraham said, Remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things and now he is comforted here while you were in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Once hell is your address, there's no changing your address. There, there are no mulligans, there are no do-overs, there is no in-between, there is no purgatory. The decisions that we make in this life are fixed in the next one. Verses 27 and 28. Father, he said, then I beg you to send them to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of, of torment. But you see, there were voices that had been warning them. Jesus says in verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Now what does that tell us about this family? This is a religious family. It's not a bunch of pagans. This is a religious family. They've been brought up on the Old Testament. And they think that their religion entitles them to heaven. But you see, none of us are entitled to heaven. If we got what we deserve, we would all get hell. If you're a Christian, you understand that hell is what you deserve but that Jesus took hell on himself on the cross in your place and died for you and rose for you so that you can have life. Trevin Wax says, hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. This ends appropriately in verses 30 and 31 with it's haunting. But he told him, no, no father, no father Abraham, uh, he told him, verse, verse, verse 31, verse 30, no father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, 
they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Wow. Jesus is foreshadowing exactly what is going to happen. He is going to rise from the dead and most will still not believe. They will reject the ultimate sign of his identity as the sin-bearing savior and son of God, his resurrection. They will reject it, they will not believe. And the point here is don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. There is a savior. There is a savior. God in his grace has provided one. One who had no sin, who became sin for us on the cross, who bore our sins in his body on that tree and bled and died for us in our place for our sins and then rose victoriously from the dead, defeating death for all who will trust in him. Trust him today. You cannot earn this. You cannot earn this. You do not deserve this. None of us do. This is offered as the, the gift of God. It's his grace. Turn to Jesus and trust him and receive him into your life as Savior and Lord and King. And if you are in Christ, make your life count. Make your life count for the glory of God. The time, the talents, the treasures, everything that God has given to you, we get one brief life to make a difference and to leverage that for the glory of God, the advance of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would help us to feel the weight of these things, Lord. Um, and the urgency, the urgency of life. There's, a, there's an urgency to the life that you have given us. Lord, Lord we, we pray for anyone who's here, anyone who's watching stream or today or any point in the future that doesn't yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Father, would, you, would your spirit open hearts right now to see Jesus in his love and his beauty and his goodness and to turn to him and trust him. And Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, Lord, would you, would you help us to, 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 to feel a sense of urgency? Lord, about the meaning of our lives and that what we do in this life with all that you've given us, it's gonna matter for, for all eternity. 
And so, Lord, help us to, to fix our minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.